Well, good morning. It's always good to be together uh, and a joy to be able to, to open God's Word for us today. But I want to start with a question first uh, to see how many of you were dumb like I was. Uh, how many of you at some point in your lives have either lived in like a college dorm or maybe like a shared single gendered house with a bunch of people the same age, it, something like that? A few, a few case in hand. Okay, actually quite a few of you. So, so if you were like me, um, that meant that you were really bad at sleeping enough. Right? I, I mean, I remember my first year of Bible college going in and for the first time in my life, I was out of my parents' house um, I was with a bunch of guys the same age as me. The, the advantage to this was we were all Christians, so for the most part, we didn't do anything spectacularly stupid. Um, but it, it did mean that we stayed up late most nights uh, playing video games or having conversations or, or watching stupid, funny videos. Um, and it didn't really occur to me how much that was affecting me. I, I did that for eight months in my first year and got back home. And sleeping in my parents' house again after a few weeks, all of a sudden I realized something. Uh, I realized that I actually had limits already as an 18-year-old. Because all of a sudden, after two weeks of sleeping well, I wasn't tired all the time. Like, I actually didn't need to take a nap at lunch just to make it through a work day. Um, and that very quickly taught me that, yes, in fact, the, the feeling invincible thing as a teenager ends pretty quickly. Uh, and in fact, God has made us limited people. And that's not a bad thing. And so today we are going to talk about rest, and we're going to see that rest is not a sign of weakness. It's actually a built-in part of being human, that we can't just go and go and go, that rest is a good gift from God that helps us to long for a greater gift that is yet to come. So this morning we'll be in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn there with me. As we spend time there this morning, we're going to look at three different things. We're going to look at the seventh day here in Genesis, in Genesis 2. We're going to see how that seventh day gets used throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Sabbath day that the people of Israel had. And then we're going to see how that theme gets fulfilled, gets brought to its completion in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. So we're going to be talking about rest a lot today. And so I want to start with a definition so that every time I use this word, we're all kind of on the same page about what it means. Because my first thought with rest is like, you know, kicking my feet up, lazy, watching something on TV, like total inactivity. That, that's not the biblical definition of rest. And so I'm just stealing this from a book called The New Dictionary of Biblical Theology. They define rest in this way. In no way is rest the image of one of, sorry, in no way is the image of rest one of blissful inactivity. Rather, it is one of unhampered constructive activity. It's not just the image of, again, kicking our feet up watching TV. Rather, it's being able to do life-giving things, constructive things unhindered by the, the basic burdens of life. So just keep that in mind as we talk about rest this morning. But we'll start in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. That's our main text this morning. Moses writes, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And so if you just started reading the Bible, picked it up at the front cover and started reading in Genesis 1, 
and you were paying really close attention, like taking notes, looking for themes, all this stuff. Um, when you get to 2, 1 to 3 that we just read, those verses would catch you. And here's why. There's actually a pattern that's established really clearly through the days of creation. So I want to show this to you. I'm just going to read three of the days, and you'll hear this pattern coming out pretty quickly. So day one, starting in Genesis 1, verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. So that's one. I'm going to read another one, starting on day three. Or sorry, day four. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Probably seeing some of the pattern, I just want to read one more day, or pick these details out. The sixth day of creation, and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, and livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And jumping down to verse 31, the end of this day, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So you're probably picking up some of the elements of this pattern, right? Each day of creation begins with creative speech, and God said. From there, we get a report of creation, God said, and it was so. Then some additional comments, depending on the day and what was created. And then we have God's assessment. He sees that what he made was good. And then in some days, this pattern repeats twice. We get another creative act. And then every day ends with there was evening and there was morning, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth day. And so by the time you get to the seventh day, if you're working your way slowly through Genesis, you're expecting something. You're expecting this pattern to continue. I mean, even if we kept kind of the contents of that verse, we, we might expect it to read, and God said, let, let there be a day set apart for rest. And, you know, some additional comments, and then there was evening and there was morning, the seventh day. But the seventh day is talked about in a completely different way. The author has clearly structured this so that we, when we hit the seventh day, it catches us. We're supposed to sit. We're supposed to see the additional details. So here are just some of the ways that it differs from the pattern that we see. There's, there's no creative act. No and God said. Nothing is created on the seventh day. Another way it differs is that every other day ends ends with just one time of saying the number of the day. Evening and morning, first day, second day, third day. But rather, three times in two verses, the author tells us that it was the seventh day. 
we see that the day is blessed. On some of the other days, God blesses the things that he created, but never does he bless a day until the seventh. And more than that, this day is made holy, which means it was devoted to God. And again, this should catch us because this is the first time anything in the Bible is made holy. And it's actually the only time in the entire book of Genesis that anything is made holy, and it is the seventh day. You might remember from a number of weeks back, Rusty showing this pattern behind me, right? Over the days of creation, there's these parallels. Day one is light from dark, and then day four parallels it with sun, moon, and stars. Day two, the sky and the sea are created, but day five, the, the birds and the fish are made to fill it. There's these patterns in all other, the other six days, but the seventh day has no parallel. It stands alone. There is nothing to match it. And then finally, there, there's no report of evening and morning at the end of the seventh day. And so it should be immediately clear to us that there is something special about this seventh day. And so I just want us to see three things, three of the details to, to draw out from the uniqueness of day seven. And the first of them, and this probably feels pretty obvious given that I just read the verses, is that God rested. Now this begs the question, did God need to rest? Like he finishes his six days of creation and he's, he's just tired out. Like it's time. He needs to take a breather, sit down, and maybe he'll start again. Okay, of course not. We, we know that that's ridiculous. This was easy work for God. He, he didn't even need to do it the way he could have, have thought it into existence. He is more than capable. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, th this is made very clear. Isaiah 40, 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. So if not out of exhaustion, why? Why does God rest on the seventh day? I think one of the things that we see, it's helpful to turn to Exodus 31. As I mentioned, we're going to talk about the Sabbath day in Israel. But as God is giving some of the laws for the Sabbath, listen to what he says. This is Exodus 31, 17. He says, It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever, talking about the Sabbath. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. And so the implication of that word refreshed is like a contented delight. My wife just finished painting a large part of our basement. Um, and I saw this moment. At the end of a long day of painting, you sit on the couch, you look at what you've done, and it's just the, I'm done. It's finished. And so God, in his rest, what we're really seeing is that he is delighting in what he's done. He, he's sitting back and enjoying the creation he's made. At the end of Genesis 1, God finally reports that what he's done is very good. It's completed. And so now that it's finished, he can enjoy. And more than just enjoying creation, he can enjoy his relationship with humanity. That's the enjoyment. That's the delight of God as he rests on the seventh day. We also see a second thing, and this probably feels pretty obvious based on what I just said, but it's that God rested from his work. It's important because what we actually see here is a pattern being set in place. God works and then he rests. And so over the last few weeks, we've talked about what it means to be God's image bearers, people who bear the divine image of God as human beings. It means that we're representations of his rule on earth. So, so you can imagine if, if a president sent out an ambassador, say to the UN, 
to, to vote on a specific resolution. And the ambassador gets there and votes in the exact opposite direction that the president asked him to. It's a bad ambassador, right? Their job is to represent the leader of that nation in the same way that our job is to represent and therefore pattern ourselves after God. And so when he sets forth a pattern of work and rest, we, as his image bearers, should see the pattern as well of work and then rest. Now, for Adam and Eve in the garden, this work was the, the command that we looked at in um, about two weeks ago, right? They were supposed to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. They were supposed to exercise God's dominion in the world to bring about flourishing. They were to tend the garden, to, to build it up, to bring about life, and then rest like God had patterned for them. Third thing we need to see, and that is that humanity was invited in to God's rest. Now, if you have your Bible open in front of you, you might be a little confused because it does not say that directly in these verses. But we have to see the implication, right? So if God's rest was him delighting in his finished creation, if it's him essentially being able to sit back and just enjoy, but uniquely to enjoy his relationship with humanity, and if Adam and Eve were to follow the pattern that he established of working first and then resting, the implication is that God is saying to Adam and Eve, do the work that I have given you, and then enter into my seventh day rest with me. Come into fellowship. Look at creation with me in contented delight. That's the invitation. So we need to pause here for a second. This, this whole image that we just worked through, this is what the world was created for. A planet perfectly suited for human flourishing. God and mankind in unbroken, intimate fellowship, resting together and delighting in what God had done, in what he had made. Being reminded of that image this morning, it's going to help us to rightly mourn the effects of sin. We, we see the brokenness of our world. We see that this is not the state that it's in. And we need to feel that longing today before we continue. This is what we were made for, to rest in fellowship with God. Well, let's notice one last thing. And this is that the seventh day doesn't have an ending. There's no morning and evening. Every other day of creation ends, and there was morning and there was evening, and then the seventh day, it's just not there. As Rusty pointed out last week, it's not as though God is inactive. Uh, he, last week, looked at, I believe, John 15 to, to prove that point. I would point us as well to the beginning of the book of Hebrews where it says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's actively, at all times, keeping creation together in such a way that if he stopped, it would all cease to exist. But if the seventh day hasn't ended, it means that the invitation to enter God's rest still stands. So while God's creative work is finished, it still is today. It, this world that we live in was the world that God called very good. It's marred by sin, but it's looking forward to a day of restoration. But it is still the seventh day. God still invites humanity to enter into fellowship with him and into a delighted rest in what he has done. 
In fact, as the story of the Bible goes on, we see that really a large theme that the Bible is developing is how God will bring fallen humanity back into his rest with him. That brings us to the Sabbath in the Old Testament. Some of you, many of you, probably grew up in homes like mine or or raised your kids in a house like mine. Uh, And that was a house in which Sunday was a day of rest. Right, my dad was a farmer, but on Sunday, you would never see my dad on the field. It did not matter if the weather was going to be awful on Monday. He was not going to work on Sunday. Especially early on, this, this kind of stopped as I got older, but we wouldn't even eat out on Sundays. We would not go to restaurants because in my dad's mind, that meant that, that we were making somebody else work. Somebody else who should have been resting on Sunday and instead they had to work. And again, a lot of you probably had this in your homes, this, this day of rest. And that idea comes from the Old Testament Sabbath which God grounds clearly in this seventh day of rest. And so in Exodus chapter 20, this is in the midst of the Ten Commandments, we see the Sabbath command. Exodus 28, God says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your female servant or your male servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your towns. Now listen to why. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So God grounds this command in the pattern that he set. He worked for seven days and rested. Now the Israelites ought to work for seven day, or six days and then rest. And because this is in the Ten Commandments, we can see clearly this is a core part of Israelite life. The whole nation rested on the seventh day. All the people, all of their servants, all of the foreigners, even the animals were to rest on the Sabbath. And it was so serious that breaking the Sabbath could result in death. But we, we often get our understanding of the Old Testament law wrong, and we read things like this in the wrong way because we do that. God did not give his law as something that was burdensome, as something that was, that was to, to beat down the people and to crush them. Instead, he gave his law because it was good. It was an act of love to give it to them. So this, this day of rest, even though the, the enforcement might feel a bit extreme to us, it was a gracious gift from God. Now, for us to conceive of that is a little hard, because the vast majority of us work a, a five-day work week with two days off. I mean, we, we don't, in our minds, need this rest because we already get two of those days. It's kind of an additional thing. But, but within this period of history, wasn't quite affluent like we are, right? Like a, a bad year of farming didn't mean, oh, I'll just go to Walmart and pick up my food. It meant I don't eat. If my crops die, I starve. I, I die. That's what happens. And so the fear would be that if you take a day off, you might starve to death the next one. It was day after day seeking to survive, to provide for yourself, for your family. And so while the Sabbath was a day to rest, it was a day to trust in God to provide, to trust that if they actually took him at his word and rested on the sixth day, that it would go well for them. I think God really makes this clear to them. Shortly after the people of Israel come out of Egypt, uh, they, they need food, and so God provides them with manna, this weird bread-like stuff that, that forms on the ground in the mornings. Um, 
And the people of Israel learn very quickly that if they gather too much for just the one day when they wake up the next morning, everything extra they gathered will have been filled with worms and be rotting. Except, as we'll see here, on the sixth day going into the seventh. So in Exodus 16, it says, Each morning everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers, which is just a unit of measure, for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Today is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. Now, if the people of Israel had noticed the pattern, they're thinking, if we keep this tonight, it's going to be rotten when we wake up in the morning. But sure enough, God provides. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded. And it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. So he was teaching them that they could trust him to provide. If they would rest on the seventh day, he would meet their needs. But maybe more importantly, the Sabbath was a day to rest and reflect on what God had done. If we think back to Exodus 20, when he gives it in the Ten Commandments, what is he grounded in? He says, you should rest because, because when I created, I rested on the seventh day. And so as they're resting, they're thinking about God's work of creation. They're reflecting on his goodness as he made the world. But also, interestingly, in the book of Deuteronomy, when we see the Ten Commandments um, recited a second time, God gives a second motivation for why they ought to keep the Sabbath. So in Deuteronomy 5, verse 8, and this is going to sound nearly identical. You're going to hear it. You shall, oh, not sorry, not verse 8, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Same command. But then he says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. And so not only were they to reflect on what God had done in creation, but they were also to reflect on what he had done in redemption, to think about the way that he had brought them out of Egypt, not by any goodness of their own, not because they earned it, but because he was gracious. He kept the promises that he had made to their forefathers. So the Sabbath was not only a day for trusting in God's provision, it was not only a day for reflecting on God's creation, but it was also a day for remembering God's work of redemption. And so the day was a great gift from God, a time that the people could acknowledge that they were human, that they were limited, that they needed rest. And it was a day to reflect on who God was, or who God is, and what he had done for them. But I'm going to get ahead of myself a little bit here. Uh, when we turn to the New Testament, I am going to argue that the Sabbath command is transformed in the New Testament in such a way that we are no longer morally obligated to keep it in the way that Israel was. However, just because we are not morally obligated to keep something 
does not mean that we would be wise, would not be wise to see the principle. Right, right, the Sabbath may not be a legal obligation for us, but we can still see that God was good and wise in giving this day of rest to his people. So, so Christian, be reminded this morning, you have limits. You're not infinite. You cannot go 24-7. We were not designed to do that. And so to also be clear, because some of you are like me and tend more towards laziness than overwork, you were also created to work, right? Even the Sabbath command kind of makes this clear. For six days you shall labor. That's the expectation. But on the seventh, there is rest. And, you know, frankly, I don't need to read these today, but I just find them funny. Some of the Bible's words about lazy people, it doesn't really think that highly of them. Proverbs 15, 19 says, The way of a sluggard is blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. Uh, or in maybe a bit more of a mocking tone, as a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. Uh, a sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but he's too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. The, the Bible doesn't view laziness very highly, but, but that being said, we were designed for both work and for rest. We were designed to do both. The Sabbath really is a rebuke to both laziness and workaholism. And so we need to be reminded today that in the utter busyness of our culture, that rest is good. Right? There, there is, I think, currently this huge cultural lie, especially within more my generation. It's about the grind. It's about the hustle. It's about productivity, constant efficiency. You work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. You have a million side hustles to, to make it all work. You work and work and work because that's all that you can do. We can't. We can't. We weren't designed to do that. We were designed to have limits and to rest and trust in God. But when we rest, we need to rest like Christians. Right? Binging Netflix, doom-scrolling TikTok, drinking to take the edge off or watching hours of nightly news is not what the Bible pictures as rest. They may feel like it for a short time. In fact, some of you are upset with me now because I just listed your favorite way to relax. <laughs> They're going to feel like it for a short time, right? It's like stuffing your body with sugar. It feels good in the moment, but it's not going to sustain you in the long run. These things will never truly restore your soul. What did we see in the Sabbath commands in Exodus and Deuteronomy? What does Christian rest look like? It's a rest that reflects on what God has done in creation and in redemption. And it's a day that is holy and devoted to the Lord. So when I say creation, right, I'm not just talking about like the sky and the trees, so that's perfectly good. Like what are some of the ways that, that as we rest, we can reflect on God's goodness in creation? I think, yeah, go on a walk, <laughs> right? See, see the beauty of nature. Thank God for what he has done. But I also think of, of reading a good book just a good fiction book, praising God that he gave humans creative abilities, that we can write compelling stories, that we can get lost in these, and thank him for that. I think of enjoying time with friends or family, praising God that he made us relational beings, that he's given us other people to do life with. I think of playing sports, right? Praising God that he gave us bodies that are able to do these things, or, or enjoying some good music, or cooking a good meal, or sitting down with your family and watching a good movie. The, the key 
and delighting in God's goodness in creation is that we remember where those gifts came from. We don't enjoy them as ends in themselves. They're a way of worshiping God. We thank him for his gifts. And this would be a whole sermon in and of itself, but it's worth saying that, that as we find rest in the goodness of God's creation, especially in entertainment, we ought to be very careful that the things that we enjoy for entertainment would please him. They are not things that he hates. But then how, how do we reflect on God's goodness in redemption? Now look, I can't believe I get paid to do what I do. Like what, what a cre- I get paid to study the Bible and to come up here and do this is wild. Even that being the case, I don't think that I do this enough, which means likely none of us do. None of us spend enough time reflecting on God's goodness in redemption, right? Spending time in the word and reflecting on what it tells us that Christ has done for us. Spending time in prayer, not, not just coming with a laundry list of requests, but coming in adoration, coming in thanksgiving, coming to confess our sins before the Lord, to acknowledge that we need his redemption because we could never earn our way to him. Think of sitting back with a good Christian book, a book that points my thoughts to Christ. If you want those, I have good recommendations, I promise. I think about being here, right? What do we do when we gather, if not take time to reflect on God's goodness in redemption? As we sing, pray, and hear the good news of Jesus Christ, it's what we do. We come here to be restored. So Christians see the wisdom in what God gave Israel, even though, no, it is not a moral obligation for us, at least not in that way, not, not the one day in seven pattern, but it is wise and good, and it's worthy of our efforts to build into our lives these rhythms of godly rest. But we need to see the greater reality, and we find that in the New Testament. See, one of the great truths of the Bible is that everything that is revealed, given, and foreshadowed in the Old Testament finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. It's all about him. All of the Old Testament and the Sabbath, it's no different. It's all about Jesus. It really shouldn't surprise us then that in Matthew 11, Jesus stands up and cries out, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So maybe worth pointing out, Jesus doesn't say, you who are weary and burdened, just wait for the Sabbath, it's coming. Or, or just wait, the, the workload on the Sabbath is light. No, he says, come to me. If you need rest, don't, don't wait for this one day in seven, come to me. And that is how the Sabbath is transformed in the New Testament as it goes from being one day a week to rest and do this into being invited to rest daily and into eternity in Christ. And so Jesus says that if you are burdened and need rest, you come to him. He's the solution. He is the one. But, but it is not just the rest of the Sabbath, right? This earthly rest from our, from our burdens, from our work but the rest that Jesus is saying is available in him, it's the very rest of God from Genesis chapter 2. That seventh day rest that God entered into when he finished creation, the rest where he delighted in what he had done and looked forward to relationship with humanity, that is the rest that Jesus invites us into. It's eternal, delighted rest in fellowship with God. 
It only comes through Christ. So what we were created for, we, we were created to be in loving fellowship with our Creator. Sin has shattered that fellowship, but through Christ and His death on the cross to pay for sins, you are able to enter back into that fellowship through repentance of your sins and faith in Christ. The author of Hebrews gives us an extended treatment of the rest that Christ offers us. I had Esther read some of it, but I just want to read the whole section now, starting in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. We'll read it, and I just want us to see three things specifically in, in these verses. So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. And so he's looking back on the history of Israel. He's seeing that this is what they always did. God brought them out of places with his mighty arm, and then they would rebel. They would stop trusting him. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, don't be like them. Don't harden your hearts. He says, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestor tested, ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those who Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest? if not those who disobeyed. So we see that they were not able to enter, that is able to enter God's rest, because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering God's rest still stands, let us be careful that, that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value of that, to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it, rem it still remains for some to enter that rest. And since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time ago he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. 
Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So just three things I want us to quickly see in these verses. The first is that God's rest is obtained by faith. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it, which might make us think, works, fallen short, I have to do more. But he immediately clarifies, For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. So rest is obtained by faith. In fact, the foundation of the rest that God offers us is faith. That The rest of the New Testament makes this so clear. We do not enter God's rest by our own good works. We enter it by faith. Which means that, that we need to stop striving to try and please God by our own goodness. We simply need to rest in what Christ has done and to cling to him. A number of weeks back, um, I was sitting with an individual who doesn't attend this church. They, they have a degenerative illness of some sort, and they're, um, they're stuck in bed. They, they need help getting up, moving around at all. And as him and I were talking, um, I just heard so clearly from him. He was burdened by the fact that, that he believed that if he just prayed more, that if he just believed in God a little bit harder, that God would finally heal him. And it just broke my heart. Like, brother, cling to Christ. Don't, don't, don't put your hope in your prayers. Don't, don't put your hope in the size of your faith. Put your hope in Jesus. He has accomplished everything that needs to be done. He was weighing himself down, thinking that he had to strong-arm God by his behavior. But the call is to rest in what God has done. Second thing I want to point out in these verses, it's kind of unrelated to our main point today, but, but we need to see it. We need to encourage one another as we fight against unbelief to pursue faith, to pursue God's rest. Right, that the way that the author here says it, it is beware that, that none of you have an evil, unbelieving heart, but rather encourage one another as you strive to come into that rest. So I just want to say today to, to those who are here who are feeling that, that doubt, feeling that pull of sin, feeling its hardening effects as, as you're enjoying the things of God less and enjoying your sin more, bring your doubts into the light. Bring your sin into the light. Invite the church into your struggle so that we can strive alongside you so that you would attain to this rest. Don't fight it alone. And to those of you who are in a vibrant place in your walk with the Lord, more mature believers here, I would invite you to look for those who you can see are being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You're seeing the patterns in their life. You're seeing sinful behavior becoming more and more common. You're seeing them running from the things of God and pursuing other things. Call them out of it. Strive together with them. Spur them on towards a self-abandoning belief in Jesus. Look around. Look around this room. The goal for each one of us should be that everyone here enters the rest with us when Christ returns. Final thing we need to see. In verse 3, of Hebrews chapter 4. We see that the rest that Jesus offers us, it's a present reality. He says, now we who have believed 
enter that rest. This is an idea that we talk about in the Bible as being an already but not yet. Already, the moment that we put our faith in Christ, there is a reality of rest. And yes, there, there is a future rest that is far greater, eternal, joyful, fellowship with God. That's the rest that is coming. But, but there's an already. There, there is a rest that begins the moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. In that moment, you go from being an enemy of God to being an adopted child. You, you go from death to life. You go from being under the curse to being a child of the promise which means that you can trust God's sovereign care in the midst of all of your anxieties. It means that you today, Christian, can rest from your worries, knowing that God has promised to never cease doing good to you, knowing that he has promised to work all things together for your ultimate good, knowing that even the reason you woke up this morning and were still a Christian was not because of your own faithfulness, but because of his. He will hold you. You can rest in him today. He will not let you down. So then, in light of how the whole Bible develops Genesis 2, 1 to 3, what should we learn from it this morning? First, rest is a good gift from God to us. But true biblical rest is found in resting in such a way that we reflect on God's goodness in creation and redemption. And we get refreshed by those realities. The second thing is that God has invited us into his rest. He has invited us to enter into his rest with him, but the only way that we can get there because of our sin is through Jesus Christ. Some of you today need to hear the words of the author of Hebrews. He calls us to do it today, that there's no point in, in putting this decision off any further. If you are feeling the pull of God on your heart to repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ, do it today. Enter the rest that is offered. Finally, for those of you who have put your faith in Christ, your rest began on that day, the day you believed you entered into a rest that will never end. That means that we don't need to rely on our works. We don't need to worry about, about measuring up to every standard, even as we pursue holiness as well as we can. It also means we don't need to fear tomorrow. We can trust God's good providence in our lives. Greater, though, is the rest that we look forward to. There is a day coming of infinite, eternal, joyful rest in the presence of our God, being refreshed in the beauty of his creation. But until that day, he has promised to sustain you by giving you rest in Christ. Let's pray. Father, who are we that you would invite us to this? What could we possibly offer you? What could we possibly give that would equate to the gift that you have offered us? Lord, we know the answer to that question is that we can't. There is nothing lovely in us that you would have us, and yet you have invited us into your rest. More than that, you have made the way for us. We thank you that in Christ, you give us a rest that begins the moment of faith and will continue on into eternity. We thank you that, that you are the one who sustains, you are the one who restores, that you have given us beautiful creation 
by which we can see your goodness. But more than that, you have given us the cross to look back on as your great act of redemption for us. So, Father, as we live in this broken world and we feel drained and drawn out by it, as we feel our limitations, let the hope of the rest that is to come sustain us to that day. Lord, day by day, remind us of what has been done for us to give us the strength. Father, we know that you will hold our faith, and we thank you for that. Teach us now to live in light of that each day. Amen.